Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. On today's episode of the podcast, we welcome my friend Darren Calhoun. Thanks so much for being here and talking with me. Um, would you introduce yourself, include uh, denominational background, anything like that you want to say? Sure. Uh, so, hi, everybody. My name is Darren Calhoun. My pronouns are he, him. And I am joining from Chicago, where I serve in a few roles. I um, I'm digital pastor at Urban Village Church, which means I'm kind of the, the eyes and ears for our online community and making sure that people who may never join us in person are able to be full and thriving parts of our community. Then I sing in a progressive Christian band called The Many. We're making music that uh, makes us lament and inspire. And then uh, beyond that, I've also been producing uh, producing and consulting with nonprofits um, around racial justice, LGBTQ inclusion, um, and, you know, what that means for for uh, for people in everyday life. So I'm doing a few things, but it's glad to, it's, I'm so glad to be with you again. Just a few. Um, and I will also say, just like I've said in other uh, episodes, that the disability community is often scattered in many different denominational backgrounds, and often it is hard for us to connect within our own denominations based by uh, stereotypes and also wanting to um, hide for those of us mm-hmm. with disabilities who can do that. So I am grateful that Darren's here to have a conversation. I will also say, which was not planned, but I used as part of my disability and in awareness inclusion work. Of course, I give y'all credit, but I love the your song which we can link to this episode the uh these bodies song because it is it i think has a positive way of talking about our bodies whether you have a disability or not and oftentimes in the church when we talk about our bodies and disability disability is used in a negative way so that's like the one song that i can find that i'm like this is positive (laughs) so thank you absolutely Um, super yeah as I uh, have been talking with other guests, many of them have very physical disabilities. Um, how would you identify yourself within the disability community or would you identify within the disability community? Yep, I am I am cautiously uh, taking on that as a, as a public identity um, because I've spent most of my life as a typically able person or identifying that way or understanding myself that way. Um, but during the uh, during the pandemonium, I, <laughs> like many people, had an opportunity to find out that I am in I'm part of the NeuroSpicy crew. I am neurodivergent. I have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, which isn't always the most useful way of describing what this is. Um, what I'm learning, especially from folks on TikTok, is that this particular experience has a lot of messy history um, and it sits in the same general spectrum, if you will, of autism as well as um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so what that means for me as somebody who is an attentive type uh, is that 
my ADHD isn't always expressed in something that's very obvious and visible. People often think of the hyperactive kid who can't sit still, who's always cutting up in class or something like that. Um, but the majority of people of color, the majority of women, um, the majority of queer folks who who get adult diagnoses are uh, type are the inattentive type, which is more of it's an internal expression. Your mind's going all over the place, or your um, the ways that 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 uh, ADHD is often characterized or or portrayed in movies is the hyperactive type, but the inattentive or I'm sorry, the impulsive type. That's the more outward expression. But this inattentive type is very internal. And people of color, women, queer folks have often spent their lives learning how to mask or how to hide in general as a part of survival. And so we know how to how to blend in a lot more. And therefore, doctors and, and clinicians often don't don't see us or they'll tell us like was told to me. Oh, no, if you had ADHD, you would be this and you would do that. And then I'm walking my uh, psychiatrist through the DSM description of inattentive type. And it's like, oh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's the that's the quick version of it. But it's it's been a fun adventure for the probably the last two years now. OK, so you're early in like you're understanding yourself as a person with a disability. Um, and I don't Absolutely. know if you are familiar with these terms or not, but would you so within the disability community, which we've talked about, folks tend to be either like use identity first language or people first language or a combination of both. Do you know what that is if I say it that way? Yeah. For okay. fortunately fortunately I've had time to listen to folks like you, folks like Zoe Sheets, who have been doing disability advocacy. And for me as an advocate, um, my advocacy in general has been intersectional. So disability has, has for a long time been a critical part of how I understand what does it mean to be oppressed? What does it mean to have access? Um, and so a lot of this is just stuff I was watching from the corners. And even me watching disability TikTok was, oh, let me figure out how to be a better ally. Oopsies. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, wait, I am. I am. Right. I belong right. here. <laughs> this is, these are my people. I didn't know we were all together here. So so when it comes to the language, I think much, much like when it comes to many other things, um, it's really what the people what the people want. Uh, I think I often describe myself as a person with ADHD because um, I'm also gay and I remember when I first came out, people would introduce me as, hey, this is my gay friend, Darren. It was like, how do you know I'm gay before you even know I have a name? <laughs> and it's not that I'm ashamed. I was out. But, you know, it was just like I'd, I'd rather be identified by who I am before this other thing. But depending on what situation I'm in, there are times where I will do, you know, uh, reverse that order or whatever. Um, but I'm always going to default to whatever the person who's who's living with whatever the experience is. I'm going to default to what they want, just like when, you know, whether or not to use the word queer. It's whatever you want. Maybe you don't want to use it. Maybe you do. But I'll, re I'll honor whatever word you choose. I always say it's like a mix depending on the, the group. So if I'm with a whole bunch of crippled people, I'm going to use like uh, disability first language, right? Or like... Mm -hmm. 
but if I'm not sure if I'm in a mixed group of people, then I will um, divert to people first, just because in order to like be conscious of like the stereotypes that are, I know that are present in the room. Yeah. So exactly. And so I go between both. Um, you talked about like slowly coming to your identity as a person with a disability. How has that been for you? I mean, a lot of the question I've been asking the other folks, most of the other folks we've interviewed have had their disabilities for a long time. Um, and so maybe this magic pill question will hit differently, right? Like if you could be given this magic pill that would all of a sudden make you not have your disability or which often happens to folks with disabilities, we get preyed on. Or mm, I, mm. I say P R E Y, but um, amen. What, what is that like? How does that land for you then? Yeah, uh, this will actually get into some interesting stuff when we talk about medication as well, right? <laughs> um, so again, I, so much of me understanding my my disability and embracing that comes from the lens of my queerness. So for me, um. I love who I am and I and I and I love the way my brain works um, and the way my body chemistry works because it's like, yeah, I do things and I'm able to do things that for a lot of people, it's it's the opposite. So when when the world is chaos and, and really quick decisions need to be made or uh, somebody needs to see the big picture, that is my strong suit. When it comes to getting little things done that are routine and monotonous, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I relate. Not. Hello. Yes. <laughs> and so it's it's for me. Um, I've also had uh, the benefit of having grown up in a house with what I believe are two undiagnosed parents um, that are somewhere somewhere on on various spectrums. Um, but in doing so, and especially as my mom, who's been trained as a special ed educator, um, having accommodations was just a normal part of life. And so I never had an, an IEP or individualized education plan because my mom always was working from that lens because everybody could use an individualized education plan. But most of the time, right. you only get one if you have a diagnosis and you're in a school system that can accommodate that. So for me, when I look back at these different pieces of my life, it's like, oh, like this hasn't been horrible for me in some ways because I had the kind of support at home that could really let me flourish and be an individual and, and you know, follow my hyper focuses or whatever. But on the, on the other hand, the part where you just felt weird, again, through that lens of queerness, right? where you just felt like, why don't I fit in? Why can't I get this done like everybody else? Why can't I just memorize my multiplication tables, but I could tell you every detail of the last play that I saw and how they rigged the lighting. Like, <laughs> you know, those kind of pieces wouldn't have I, I would, you're, you're like telling my life story to me right now. I have an 11 year old that is just about to go to actually possibly get this diagnosed. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I, I had a, I had a question for you about your parents. Were they surprised by your diagnosis at all? So, so my father's passed on. Um, and so this won't be something I'll be able to, to, to actively engage him about. But for my mom, 
that is been very interesting to to kind of sit with her and and know that the majority of women who get diagnosed get diagnosed because their male child got a diagnosis. Um, you know, those kind of secondhand ways that our system fails us. But uh, but for her, you know, I, I doubt that she'll ever go and get a diagnosis in any kind of formal sense. Um, but it does create some really interesting conversations because we're a lot alike. And so I'll, I'll share with her TikToks or little little insight videos. And it just creates good conversation. Um, but I think from for me um, being you know, a bit younger and a bit more into like how might I live differently as a result. Uh, it has, it has been profound in the change of how I, how I look at myself, how I look at, for example, I've never had just one career. You know, I, I introduced three different things and I was like, this is just a short list. This isn't all the stuff that I do. <laughs> I love it. And that felt bad for a long time. Um, and I, I feel like I'm getting away from your uh, original question it getting my diagnosis really made things make sense for me it finally gave me a bucket to put all of these ideas and ways of being and and just feeling odd and different and sometimes alone it put that into a bucket and it was like oh this is very predictable and normal and even useful but um but yeah i was i was I would say that I was experiencing depression until I got my diagnosis and I was really able to, to, to reframe and rework how I do life. And that has been transformative. Yeah. Being, being the parent of a, a kid that we are expecting will receive this diagnosis. We try our best to not be overly frustrated with their lack of ability to do the basic day to day, you know, the minutiae, the things that you were saying you were struggling with of like, why don't we have our shoes on again? We're about to leave the house. Like, you know, basic things like that. So we're stuck in this. We have to do regular things while also not trying to pigeonhole our child into a, why can't you just do the normal things sort of a box that might lead to what you're talking about right now of feeling sort of out of yeah. place and, you know, othered, so to speak. Yeah. And then that there's, there's this great opportunity in that, right? Like, while your child is still young, you can start helping them see how to create routines that aren't based on, oh, it's seven o'clock, so we're supposed to do this in the morning. Instead, this routine of, hey, if you're standing here, then the next thing is right here. If you're, you know, once you go brush your teeth, then the next thing is this, like creating flows. Mm -hmm. And that works in ways that are profound and wonderful, but we don't think of things that way. It was, it was almost a game in my household to figure out like, what's the flow? What, you know, how do we, how do we do this next? And I so, think that that yeah, helps I'm with really folks that. Um, also that have PTSD um, or anxiety disorders to know an order or to know what is the sequence of things as best as we can know them, right? Cause sometimes stuff yeah. happens beyond our control. Um, yeah, can we talk a little bit about, because I know there's stigma sometimes in the church around uh, medication and uh, and taking medication, using medication. So. Yeah, yeah, this is this this is the one of the, the big challenges, especially having an invisible disability, um, because to most people, you quote unquote, look healthy. And so we often treat people who look healthy and again, huge air quotes there, 
we treat them as, oh, you just need to try harder. Um, and like I said, my journey really started with the, with the depression diagnosis. And uh, I found out that the medication that I was using for depression off-label or not according to the instructions is also a medication that's sometimes prescribed for ADHD. And so I was like, ooh, this makes so much more sense. But uh, to, be, to be transparent, the beginning of my journey when it came to even antidepressants was cannabis. Um, pre-cannabis, I was, I was very much a, a child of the 80s who grew up with just say no. You know, drugs are all bad. If you smoke even once or if you do something even once, it's going to be the end of your life. And uh, substance use or anything like that, even alcohol abuse, weren't necessarily part of my childhood. I just could see people like in the street or something who were clearly being affected by a substance. And so I didn't have much firsthand reference for it. Um, and so I said, well, I'm, I'm happy. I'm wild. I can have fun at a party. I'm an extroverted ambivert, so I don't need it to be social. <laughs> So I, yeah, I was, I would, I didn't just felt, I didn't condemn it. I just didn't feel the need to, to engage it. Um, but, uh, while I was, <laughs> this is funny, while I was on one of my, uh, my LGBTQ Christian, uh, conference trips, I was with all the people who are the safest, most trustworthy folks that I could be with. And I was like, okay, and we're in Denver. I'm going to go ahead and try cannabis. And, and I, I, I still don't smoke, but I, I had an edible. And I remember I, I'd taken it and I was in my hotel room with, with some friends and we were all just kind of hanging out and I'm editing photos. Um, and as I'm editing the photos, suddenly I felt like, I don't know if we cuss on no. this, so, but stuff just didn't matter. <laughs> 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 for not cursing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> stuff stuff don't matter i'm you know i am i am suddenly relaxed even though nothing was wrong i was in probably the happiest like setting i could be i'm with all my queer christian friends and i was like there's another level of relaxed that i can experience and the only reason i'm experiencing it is because of a chemical that went into my body and is affecting parts of my brain what <laughs> and so that that moment oh, made me really, really aware what, when they say depression is a chemical imbalance. It was like, oh, no, this isn't just like, you know, you, you put too much of Agent X in the, in the mix. It's just like, oh, our emotions are chemical. Our attractions are hormones that are moving through our body. And, if, and you can change some of that and it affects how you feel even when you're not feeling bad. And so that opened me up to the idea of antidepressants um, because, again, we had that stigma in the church. Oh, that's just a demon. That's just a spirit. You need to pray that demon off of you. And I came from a very abusive, uh, spiritually manipulative background where that was how I at some point prayed for people in some of those same ways. But now I had this firsthand experience that challenged all that. Um, and it led me down this road of taking an antidepressant. First day I took it, it got up and washed uh washed my dishes that had been piled up in the sink and cleaned up some stuff and took some stuff to the laundry he's like oh my god <laughs> i couldn't have imagined this 24 hours ago <laughs> and that's not the way most depressants work for people right. um so I, you know i want to make that clear 
But I, I suddenly had this firsthand experience that things can be very different. And the only thing that changed was this little pill that I took. And it's not a cure-all. It's not like, oh, now I don't have any problems. But it was, it was definitely an, an affirmation of the fact that there are some things that are different about my chemistry that were benefiting from these medications. So it, it, it changed a lot. And I, my big picture view of it is that God made humans in God's image and likeness. God created us. Why wouldn't we be creators? Why wouldn't we be able to, in the same way that we built bridges that can span the middle of, of the waters, in the same way that we can make uh, vessels able to take us to space or down to the depths of the sea, why can't we honorably have the ability to create medications that can change our quality of life? Yeah, so I've always understood they are, medication you know, as like, because I tell people, take your medications as a way, because... Uh, we're more traditional, like holiness background folks. But so I say that, like, as a way to understand uh, that our bodies are temples of God and to, for it to mm -hmm. function in the way that it should also requires medication. And that's a way in which we can worship God, like to, to, to take your medicine. Yeah. Um, is, is a way to worship God and not necessarily something we should pray away or pray against or I don't know however people would say that um right interesting question because unlike you when I walk into a room you can see that I have a disability so that has both pluses and minuses right like nobody questions it because duh um but you can walk into a room and sometimes you have to disclose depending on the situations around you. And sometimes you have the opportunity not to do that. Um, can you tell me more about like, can you think of a time where you had to disclose? Did you feel like that was going to have people think of you in a different way? Uh, or yeah. Yeah. I think to be, to be vulnerable on this, um, in disclosing, and disclosing to my band, you know, the, the people that I, I create with, that I spend time on the road with, that we have a lot more intimate connection than, let's say, the people I work with at church where we pretty much see each other, you know, for this, <laughs> right? Um, disclosing to my band, I didn't expect them to be anything but wonderful and awesome. Mm -hmm. But it also means owning up to this is why I'm always late and this is why I need to really know about what time we're going to eat in a certain place or why even though you called me and you sent me a text message why I still didn't know that we were doing xyz right like there there are very practical ways that disclosing makes me vulnerable and feel like are you now going to be thinking every time I'm late it's you know, just an excuse or something that you just don't understand. Um, and so that that's probably where it's been the most most vulnerable and the most uh, also the most freeing because it's it leads to all of us kind of sitting with our own stuff. Because uh, while not everybody has ADHD diagnosis, plenty of us have anxiety, plenty of us have, you know, abusive histories and so forth. So it's like because all of these expressions of of these experiences uh, 
gives us some of the same outcomes, some of the same responses. Uh, that's been that's been very helpful. But it's still, I think about it every time, and I do see it through that lens of privilege, right? Um, in the same way that not every room I'm in is going to perceive me as gay, not every room I'm in is going to perceive me as uh, somebody with ADHD, and that even earlier on, I was saying that's why I've been cautiously walking into identifying as a person with the with the invisible disability, um, mainly because I know I walk in with a ton of privilege. I'm a tall man, and tall men get listened to and believed in ways that short black women don't. Mm -hmm. And so I want to show up in this space in a way that is very much echoing and, and amplifying the voices of those who've taught me how to how to exist in this space because black women have been saving me my whole life. <laughs> I mean, that's what um, we did. We shouldn't have to do it, but that's what we did. <laughs> that part. <laughs> that part. So yeah, I, I and I and and the advocate and the activist in me does choose to disclose mostly in places where it may feel extra, but where um where it makes a stronger point other than me saying, hey, let's do this for ac accessibility. If it's not really being received, then I'll just slide in there as a person with ADHD. This is really important to me. And people sometimes re realign their understanding of why I'm saying we need to do X, Y, Z. Um, but normally I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty convincing on saying why we need to do these things for physical mobility, accessibility or for visual accessibility or for, you know, it's different stuff, but uh, but yeah, I I I I do leverage my privileges where I can. There's there's this insatiable curiosity I think I'm understanding better from from uh, those that maybe are still trying to understand disabilities better. And Latia has shared in previous episodes the the ongoing joke that makes me still slightly uncomfortable of poking fun at her own disability in a humorous way to see my reaction to it to just like you know screw around mm -hmm. with me I'm like let's can i laugh at that i don't even we're laughing at your disability <laughs> you made the joke so like what am i what do i do with that and like you know the more public the the opportunity the funnier it is for her obviously and that's why she does it and then i just sit there I'm like okay i think we laugh at that uh in a in a similar way that curiosity from someone like me where it's just like i want to understand i sometimes we have the tendency to compartmentalize so i'm curious if some of the the fear to be vulnerable isn't because someone like me might come in like, oh, ADHD, is that why you're late? Kind of explaining your own behavior to you half the time. Yeah, I, I think that that exact moment is, whew, that, that hits right into a pain point from, from the abusive church that I was in. Because I, before I had a diagnosis, before any of this stuff, me struggling through my queerness meant going to my church leaders and saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. I want to be straight, but um, but I don't know what to do to make that happen. And I disclosed in particular um, what I now understand as a uh, disassociation or a freeze response. But back then it was just sometimes I oversleep. And I know I oversleep when I'm stressed or when something's going on that I don't like. I could articulate that much. I didn't have any clinical language for it. And what they did was say, oh, they came back to me one day and said, oh, you must be hooking up with guys or doing some gay stuff because 
you overslept again. And I was like, that was not what I was trying to communicate to you. And that's certainly not the way you use that kind of information. And so I, I, you know, use it as an example of it is very vulnerable to share how, how your, how your disability or how what you're going through manifests and people tend to use it in the wrong way. So comedy works when you're laughing with someone and where their disability isn't like the the butt of the joke, but instead where when people disclose things to you, it's so that you can have more empathy, so that you can enter into the pain, so that you can also enter into the laughter. But it, I really feel like if you can't, if you can't feel why, why they're, you know, disclosing this or why they're, they're making it clear to you, then it's like, yeah, you probably should like stay back, <laughs> take the cues of the, of the person with the lived experience um, and use it more as a data point rather than an action item kind of thing. Unless they say, hey, when this happens, please do this or please do X, Y, Z. So, yeah, if that's helpful, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm thinking about um, in church spaces, what would be, like if you can tell those people who are on their ministry boards or church leadership, what is the most helpful thing for you or what would you want folks to know um, about disability? Yeah. Um I, th- I think a couple of things. One, many times we wait until there's someone with a specific need to start doing accommodations. And then we go, well, no one's here with the need, so we don't need to do accommodations. And then we go, how come we don't have people with needs in our space? We'd love to accommodate them because you won't build the space for them, <laughs> right? Um, and so because... Many times people are, are trying to uh, solve every possibility and because they can't solve every possibility, they do none. They overlook the fact that, hey, maybe you should have some fidget toys as a part of your greeting table. And if you leave those at the back, then people who need something to do with their hands during a, a service where you're sitting down and listening for 45 minutes or two hours, <laughs> they'll have something. <laughs> Amen. Adults and children, right? <laughs> or if you if you do have, and I'm not just going to drag the 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 uh, more high church liturgy traditional churches, but if you do have a more quiet, reverent service, then make sure that you do have some spaces where movement is appropriate, or have spaces where people can can go and 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 express however they need to in that, yeah, and still be a part of the community, right? Not just oh, just watch it at home online. It's like yeah. Online is important, but if I can get into this building, then then make make sure I can be in this building. Right. Um, and on the flip side, because uh, you know me me as somebody who's done media and production for years, it's taken me a while to understand what overstimulation looks like. Like I'm I'm the person who produces sound and produces video and can have all these lights and sounds going at once, but I can also be overstimulated. And so the value of, of having spaces where if I am in a big production church or if I am in a very large venue where I can go and find quiet 
or I can go and get rest or I can go and get water where again, it's still normalized for me to take time and space away. If I need to go to the bathroom, anything like that, that also is a super important and valuable thing. And this benefits everybody, right? That that's what we always see everything from how we all, all, all of us benefit from ramps, even though ramps are an, an accommodation specifically for folks with mobility issues, but we all benefit. We all benefit from the elevator right. um, in the same way. Right? <laughs> we all benefit from having some, some different kinds of spaces, having open captions on the videos. It is so hard to get us to do that one step. And again, I'm guilty of it myself because, you know, we'll, we'll be pulling from one place and that place may have had closed captions, but, pulling that video so it shows up on our screen and has open captions, you have to do some extra steps. And if we did that, everybody would understand the video better. We wouldn't have to blast it so people could hear it. Like there's so many benefits, but it means we, mo we might move a little bit slower and making space for us to move a bit slower and take more time and be more intentional. That's, I, I'm going to open another can of worms, but that is part of us decolonizing our worship experiences because um, in some ways people people say the the western corporatized capitalistic world that we live in is built for shaped by able-bodied neurotypical folks but in reality what if neurotypical is just just the social expectations of of white western european folks who were in cold environments who had to stay inside who you know all these other things it's like the rest of us who grew up in places where we could be outside moving working with our hands and our bodies like <laughs> right. what what if we just weren't built for this from the start <laughs> <laughs> i i agree with that yes um yeah is there anything else you would want to say that you haven't said um, anything you want to plug here to your work, your many different hats you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. First, I, I really want to say thank you um, again. Let's say you've been uh, such a powerful teacher and a and a um, a visible inspiration to making sure that different programs we've participated in, um, seeing seeing how we can make those more accessible or seeing the short stops. Right. Some of those temporary ramps just is not actually meant for people who need a ramp. Exactly. <laughs> They're meant for carts. <laughs> <Exactly>. right? <laughs> like, I can't actually um, do that, but thanks. <laughs> thanks. It was a nice effort. And it took a lot of effort to get that. And it was like, thanks and no. And being okay to say, no, thank you for, for trying. And no, that I'm not going to take that. Um. You know that that no is a is a liberating word. It is powerful and profound. Um, so that's that's one thing. And then two, um, I appreciate the way that you're using the music that the mini does. We do have this in this uh, strong intention to be inclusive, um, to to have justice minded and justice themed songs. Um, but again, full transparency, we still we still sit and and struggle with how are we using certain language. You know, like with, there was a song we were we were creating and it had the word crazy in it. Um, and crazy can be an ableist exactly. uh, kind of term. And there are ways that you can use the word crazy that aren't ableist. And then there are ways that are not. And it was one of those 
you could use it in a non-ableist way, but instead we just found other language, right? Um, and so I I really, you know, want to open that invitation to continue to, to, to reach out to us and to challenge us and to say, hey, I really love this thing, but this, uh, or... Yeah. You know, there's an opportunity to, to, to change this or think about this differently or to, to learn something that maybe you didn't know. So by all means, I want I want that feedback coming anytime you feel the energy to and never, ever to feel like it's like, oh, if you don't do it, it's not going to be done because it's, you know, I, I got space and energy to, 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 to keep fighting that fight. But uh, I love working with yeah. you. So if you want to hear our music, check out the many dot com. That's our our website. Um, if you want to find out more about me or what I'm doing, you can always find me on social media at Hey Darren, H-E-Y-D-A-R-R-E-N. And if you uh, want to go to my website, it's DarrenCalhoun.com. So that's where you can find me and support the work that I'm doing. All right. That's good for me. Unless you have a question, Josiah. Oh, I'll make sure all that's in the show notes. Okay. Thank you for the time, Darren. Yes. Yes, thank you. This has been absolutely a pleasure. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it. Mm-hmm.